0: Hey, tablet show fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. The Tablet Show, Episode 124,
1: with guest Dominic Denicola, Recorded live Friday, January 31st, 2014. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show, conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Dominic Denicola about his experiences taking HTML beyond HTML5. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at T-E-L-E-R-I-K
0: and now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's Carl and Richard. Uh, wow, it's 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 a luxury to be in the studio after being on the road for so long. You're enjoying yourself, I aren't really you? I really am.
2: When we were just talking before the show, and I said, dude, I have nothing planned for this weekend, and it's been months. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? Because, uh, I mean, since the road trip, we were either flying in or
0: flying out er- almost every weekend. This is a fun life. I highly recommend it. But <laughs> I've actually been getting onto some software. Uh, I took up a contract with the Kinect, and nice. I, can't, I can't talk about it. It's highly classified, but uh, I'm sure it'll come up at some point. It's low hanging fruit, man. This, All right. Uh, low hanging fruit for you. You're a Kinect guy. That's yeah. a, the, you're a rare breed. It's just wonderful. And I'm really, really enjoying it. Awesome. I'm excited for you. All right. Well, let's roll the uh, music for Better Know Framework. <laughs> All right, buddy. What do you got? Well, there was some news this week, last week, I guess, if you want to do the time shift thing. Okay. Um, a lot of us got an email from the president of Telerik, who, of course, has been a major sponsor of .NET Rocks. And, and a, a good Telerik friend show, of ours, too. And a very, very good friend of and ours. Vasil Terziev. Vasil Terziev. He was announcing the company Telerik is sort of going in a new direction, and they have a new platform called the Telerik Platform and uh, I think it's worth just shining a little light on for those who are doing mobile development. So if you go to Telerik.com platform, you will see this Telerik platform. So what they're doing is they have this set of UI tools and cloud services to let you develop with any approach. They call it web, hybrid, or native um, with a bunch of different languages. Uh, Java, PHP, .NET, and uh, the UI is abstracted and the services are abstracted. So, and a lot of tools for testing and analytics and all built into this one platform.
2: I just like this idea that we have a unified space for doing all the different kinds of mobile and tablet development we might do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's
0: really cool. That is pretty cool. So there's a lot for us to learn about it, and I'm sure there's a lot for you to learn about it. To take it for a spin. So just go check it out. Telerik.com slash platform. It looks really, really interesting to us anyway. Awesome. There you go. Know it, learn to love it. Know it, learn to love it. Richard, who's talking to us?
2: Funny you should mention Telerik because I grabbed a comment off of show 117. And that is the one we did with Brandon from when we were at NDC in London. You see all the tie-in here? Oh, There's a yeah. lot of tie-ins going on here. Yep. I've got the thing going on. And Brandon <laughs> was talking about hybrid versus native mobile app development at the time. Yeah. And this comment comes from an aptly named DaArg. DaArg? DaArg, A-R-G-H, DaArg. Okay. <laughs> uh, I bet it's not his real name. I'm just guessing. Probably not. And I've I've read a bunch of his comments. over. I haven't read a bunch of his comments on the show before, but I did read a bunch of his comments. And uh, I think he's from Eastern Europe, so I'm not exactly sure, but am okay. sure we'll hear from him. And, of course, we were talking about the UI effects across platforms and ARG says, no, <laughs> not the same UI on every platform. Never make one UI for all platforms. Right. This is a fundamental mistake that needs to be avoided. People change apps quite often. Phones, not so much, and almost never the OS. Mm. Think about it this way. You've got this thing that when you go into a house, you take your pants off.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what you
2: do. That's your standard, but it's not standard in my house. Same branding, yes. Same flow, yes. Same UI, no. If <laughs> you're still not convinced, look how well it turned out for Java. That's a little weird. I'm saying That is a lot the- weird. And I, and I have a bunch of problems with this, to be honest, because I think the conversation we were having was more
0: about the idea of
2: making maintainable code that works across all the platforms.
0: Right. It wasn't about the same UI on all those platforms. The UI actually looks quite different. Um, it's rendered differently. It's just that it's uh, from the same sort of source code. Right. And I think there's one of the things that Brandon brought up really clearly for all
2: of us was the idea that one of the strengths of the hybrid apps approach is that when you update the app and code base, you update it for all the platforms at the same time. Yeah. Which is a big strength for your customers that they don't have to wait for features. So depending on what device they got, mm. they get updates at different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does mean a unified UI approach. And I certainly think the branded approach is important, that people want a certain look these days. Sure. I also feel like we're in an interesting place with people's knowledge of software, that they're not as worried about a consistent UI all the time anymore. They're pretty good at discovering things. That seems to be the norm. I totally agree. And I got to question this whole, look how good it turned out for Java thing. Yes, the Java VM problem was an interesting problem. Now you're talking about the cross platform well, But
0: that had nothing to do with UI, really. Totally
2: different ball of yeah. wax. But that's not going to stop me from sending you a tablet show. Absolutely much, so. not. I'll be in contact with you to uh, get a tablet show mug out to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. If you'd love to build you an app, just go to DiatomEnterprises.com.
0: And that brings us to our guest, Dominic Danicola. Dominic is active in the JavaScript, Node.js, and web standards communities. He's passionate about software craftsmanship and the future of the web. He used to work at barnesandnoble.com on some Windows 8 apps built in WinJS, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about that. Hey, welcome to the show, Dominic.
1: Hey there. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, good to have you here. Um, we we got you on the show because we were having breakfast in London with uh, Glenn Block, and uh, he was telling me about all the cool things that he's working on, and of course, um, you know, people that he's worked with and respects come up in conversation and your name came up. And uh, he was talking about the Node.js and WebKit stuff that you were doing. And I thought that was really interesting. And he fired off an email and one thing led to another. And here you are. Yeah. So tell us about that story that uh, let's start with what Glenn was talking about. Node.js and WebKit. What what were you doing there?
1: Yeah. Um, so, at Barnes Noble a couple of years ago, I was on the Nook study team, which is building an e textbook reader specifically for students. And it was important for us to be cross-platform to work on, you know, Macs and PCs. Sure. And potentially in the, the the web. And what we did was we built it with web technologies. We we built it with HTML5 and JavaScript and so on. And we put it inside a WebKit shell. You know, we had this custom build of, of WebKit, the, the engine that powers Safari and, and used to power Chrome. And uh, we shipped that as a wrapper with all the HTML and JavaScript inside of it. And so we had this fully featured e-textbook reading application. You can actually read any, any Nook book on it. So, you know, I use it for novels sometimes. On your Mac and your PC, and it had the exact same features and pretty much the same UI cross-platform.
0: Wow, that's pretty awesome. And and it was hosted in in WinJS? or or, So that was not the
1: WinJS app I did at Barnes & Noble. Oh, that's Uh, something
0: else different entirely. Yeah, that one was
1: purely like our own framework. We ended up using Knockout.js in in the end and and a few other things like that.
0: So let's stick with that for a minute. Um, It must be quite a challenge to host WebKit, to roll your own sort of. What were the challenges there?
1: Yeah, we took the... The hard way. So we we did it ourselves. Um, we had our own build of WebKit, which we ripped out the appropriate pieces and plugged it all into parts of the system that we need access to, like the printer and so on, and exposed those. Um, when that project got started, there was nothing. But since then, there's actually been new projects that make it a lot easier so that you don't build it from scratch. Uh, one of my favorites, you know, the, really the, the biggest name out there is called Node WebKit. And I've given a couple talks on that and used it in some of my own prototypes. Uh, on, because what it does is it exposes the Node.js APIs, you know, things like file system access or, or raw network socket access hmm. or all those other kind of useful system level things to you inside of a WebKit container. And they take care of all of that you know packaging and, and ripping out the parts of WebKit that you care about, they take care of that, so you only have to worry about building your app.
0: Yeah,
2: that's cool. So I mean, you've, you've worked on building up a development environment for a whole ecosystem here. That's not easy to do.:
1: Yeah, no, it was it was quite a quite a fun fun time, I most agree. It was a lot of work, but uh,
0: did you have anything to do with the node WebKit?
1: No, not not specifically me. I was an evangelist for it in some sense. You know, I gave conference talks about how cool it was, and I dig dug pretty deep into the source code to see how it works and what the the things are. Actually, the first time I saw it in action was with Glenn Block in in China at a conference called HuJS in Shanghai. Really fun conference, and it was really cool because. You know, a lot of the talks were in Chinese and, and I think the Node WebKit one was as well, but I could tell exactly what he was talking about because I'd worked on this exact stuff and just from the screenshots and the code samples and all that, and I was really excited. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. And uh, you wouldn't recommend doing it the hard way nowadays? Not nowadays,
1: not nowadays. There's, there's enough infrastructure around that we're in a good place to people can just use these existing projects.
0: If you could pick one thing that you learned the from doing it the hard way that was valuable. What uh, what could you point to?
1: Oh man. Um I'd say that understanding like the the integration points with the WebKit APIs up front is a really good investment. Uh because I feel like we went through several iterations where we had incomplete understanding of the best way to hook in yeah. to WebKit and hook WebKit up to the system and that was annoying. You know, we had to keep redoing it and said, oh, we need this new capability. Oh, we, our current framework doesn't really support that. We need to go learn more.
2: And so you pretty much have to refactor, go all the way back and implement it differently.
0: So having known, gone through all of that and known it from the bottom up, you were more prepared to do it right the first time. Exactly. Yeah. Your standard argument for knowledge uh, ahead of time, ahead of, ahead of need. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the project, you know, we worked on a part of Noble grew up pretty organically. It was, it started out as just, Hey, like, let's get this cross platform thing working. And then it became the foundation of our entire e textbook reader app.
2: So you didn't set out to make an, an e
1: reader? <laughs> well, we did, but the, the scope of it wasn't really entirely clear at the beginning. So are there third parties now building apps for the Nook? That they are, they are. It's not the Nook platform itself is Android, uh, so it's a little different, but right. you know, it, there certainly are.
0: But the Nook can host any Android app, can it?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And I think actually, you know, I think it was a little after I left Barnes and Noble, but I think they opened it up to the Android marketplace as well.
2: Oh, okay. Hmm. So there's sort of two ways to go about this you can go with the WebKit layer and just communicate, work with the browser or you can dig down and go right
0: into the Android layer. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: How did WinJS play into all of this? I know that you did a lot of work with WinJS and uh, that, that, uh, that crossed the Barnes and Noble uh, spectrum somewhere.
1: Yeah. So we got uh, an assignment to build a a textbook reader for, for Windows eight. And it it was really exciting and we worked on it for a while. Uh, And that's where I got into WinJS because we wanted to use all of the existing experience and, and in some cases even the code from our WebKit based app uh and then port that over to the WinJS framework for building a Windows 8 tablet app.
0: Okay. So how did that go? I mean, what was the what were the challenges there?
1: Yeah, Win.js was uh and still is, I think, pretty immature. So so it it went Interestingly, um, I gave a talk at Cascadia JS uh, a year or so ago about exactly what we ran into. And my conclusion was that, you know, WinJS as an API was very much a, a Microsoft 1.0 in the sense that Microsoft gets everything right after version three or so. Right. Yep. <laughs> Classic. Not wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there is some of the specific things that we found is, They, they weren't thinking like JavaScript developers. There's lots of verbose XML based crazy APIs. Um, you know, which, which I guess if you're building something that's supposed to work the same way in C sharp and C plus plus and JavaScript, then maybe that's where you have to end up. But it was, it was kind of inconsiderate. Um, and also that some of the bigger picture issues, like how do you structure your app and how do you write automated tests and things like that? were just not considered at all. There was no way, at least at the time, um, I think people might have hacks by now, to start up a headless instance of your app so you could run automated tests in the Win- Windows 8 environment. You know, it was just impossible. Uh, so we we had to hack together this thing that would like we'd have a surface off on the side and we'd connect to it over WebSockets and tell it to launch the app and report the results to a file which we would then read and send back to our build server. Yeah. It was kind of ridiculous.
0: It is like Fort Knox in there, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, uh where did that project ultimately lead?
1: Um well, it was going very slowly and I I had career ambitions more than, you know, working on the same slow-moving project forever. So I moved on before it was finished. Uh mm-hmm. I'm not sure sure where it is right now. Um so yeah i can't really say
2: but the goal was for a a reader for win 8 for your nook library
1: yeah well one of those does exist um don't get me wrong but it's it's uh it's not for e-textbooks we were trying to build an e-textbook reader oh i get it yeah okay
2: and that's an important distinction because you know one of the arguments in favor of the whole e-reader concept is taking care of textbooks i got kids in college let me tell you textbooks are huge yes
1: Yes,
2: and being able to get that into Win8, just so that you can run it on
1: uh, any any Win8 savvy device, that would help a lot. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And and you know the features that we add above and beyond normal book reading would be you know annotations and note sharing and various collaborative student to teacher features, things like that.
2: Does that tie to the winning JS libraries?
1: Yes, yes. Winning JS was our attempts to uh, kind of sanitize. Some of the WinJS stuff, uh, and it was it was open source. We had a lot of fun, you know, creating creating open source components at Barnes and Noble. Uh, and so there's little pieces of it that work and and that have been open sourced and put on our our GitHub. And I'm not sure exactly how how much the team is is interested in maintaining it these days, but yeah. we got some good stuff. We got a build system that allowed you to use web Build technologies like Grunt uh to compile your assets, hmm. but then still tie it in with MS Build so that it would integrate with Visual Studio where you could preview and debug your app. Um, we were working on an automated test runner, as I mentioned, um polishing that up for open source. I'm not sure if that ever got fully pushed out before I left. Um and we got just a lot of little API conveniences. Uh, you know, way of defining isolated components for your Windows 8 app, that type of thing. So
0: you made it usable.
1: That was the plan. Yeah. 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 And I think we did a pretty good job. There's there's a lot of good material there. So literally jumping out of the studio development environment to be able to do your testing and then have to jump back in to finish the build. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, that was, yeah, the, the integration with the test process was just a nightmare. But it worked in the end. You know, we got it to report to the console all the failing tests. Of a WebSocket from a surface.
0: You also point us to a, an article on custom elements, which is uh, what you say, how you think WinJS should have been built um, yeah. and maybe will be built in the future.
1: I hope so. Um, so this is really interesting because it ties into more general future of, of cross-platform web development mm-hmm. in general. But um, custom elements is this new concept coming out of the W3C Uh, It's a spec for building your own custom UI widgets um, and and essentially your own custom HTML tags. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's really exciting because if you look at some of the stuff and the contortions you go through in Mm. WinJS, that's what they're trying to get you towards.
0: Right, you're retrofitting your stuff into their syntax.
1: So you, you declare things like div data win control equals app bar you know, and, and you get an app bar, which and then you have to access like a win control property on the JavaScript interface to get to all the special Windows stuff. Right. Whereas this new custom element spec is saying, well, why don't we just make this kind of extensibility uh, a, a very you know, part of the platform so you can have an app bar tag or a Win Windows 8 app bar tag.
0: Hell, you can make your own implementation of XAML.
1: That's, yeah, essentially, you can get all the goodies of XAML, but with all the, you know, the goodies of HTML. They're very careful to maintain. One thing that coworkers have complained to me about at my, at my new, new job at Lab49, because we used to work a lot on WPF apps here, and now we're transitioning towards web technologies, is, uh, the separation of style and, and content that HTML and CSS give you, which was not present in, in XAML and WPF to a large degree.
2: Hmm. And that's interesting because, you know, a lot of folks have good things to say about XAML, that it's really rich and good control and so forth and and struggle with HTML, CSS. Like, it, it's fun to sort of compare and contrast. Where are these two going? You're migrating XAML stuff over to HTML?
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the general trend in the industry is to move towards multi-platform open web technologies. Mm-hmm. But I agree that the technologies of the open web are immature in some sense. Uh, And custom elements is is one of the big initiatives to move them in a direction that allows you to create more powerful
0: primitives. Absolutely. Just on the first page of this, uh, you know, which we'll post a link to, of this article, you can see the difference between just a, you know, a view source of an app, uh, you know, a Gmail page, which is like div soup, you know, and that's what they call it. And there's like 20 levels of divs, right? And then let's see what you could do if you had the ability to make your own tags and your own markup and it's, you know, 10 lines. Exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. And it's, it's
1: really powerful. and. There's been a number of frameworks kind of driving this uh, approach in, in user space, not in spec space you know and Angularjs is, is one of the big ones and that's what we're using in a lot of projects today. right They have the same type of declare your own custom tags. they call them directives. they have a bunch of crazy vocabulary mm. uh, but uh, it's the same idea of saying you know let's build a better version of HTML that has all these extra capabilities that allow us to build richer mm. apps. Without some of the usual, you know, div soup or, or, you know, pointless extra code to make data binding work or things like that, let's just make that built automatically into the platform.
0: So, how is how are custom elements being received around the the community?
1: Yeah, really, really well. Um, people are excited to use them and, and really starting to get into them. There's a few projects to kind of prototype using them for large UI controls. Um, in terms of vendor interest, Chrome is the one who's been driving this in a large part, just because the, the people who are most interested in pushing the web forward this way are, are a couple of people employed by Google. And so uh-huh. they get a jump start. Um, but Mozilla is definitely on board. They have their own component library um, and, and polyfill called Brick, uh, right. which you can check out for some good examples. Um, the Chrome team's version is called Polymer. They have their own library and some stuff on top of custom elements um implement interest from safari and uh, is is just starting to kick off from the safari team and uh microsoft as always is a big mystery what their plans are so i would hope that given how obviously applicable this is to windows 8 app development
0: absolutely yeah well,
2: and it, I think it's just more the way the IE team does stuff. It doesn't mean they aren't paying attention. It's that they just won't
1: talk about that they are. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I agree. And that's, you know, every once in a while you get a glimpse of like, oh, we're, we're planning on doing this or like we're interested in this. You know, so one message on a mailing list, you know, like once a month. But it's, it's very hard to get transparency into what their plans are for IE. Hmm.
2: Yeah, it didn't used to be
0: like that, but it sure is like that right now. Mm-hmm. This episode of The Tablet Show is brought to you by Telerik Icinium, which enables you to develop, test, and publish iOS and Android apps from a single code base using only HTML5 and JavaScript. And the best part is Icenium lets you do all of this from within Visual Studio, including comprehensive backend as a service in the cloud, integrated support for Kendo UI as well as jQuery mobile, and integrated testing and deployment capabilities. That makes Icenium a robust end-to-end mobile app development platform for .NET developers. Telerik Icenium, with its Visual Studio extension, is available on a subscription basis and part of the Telerik DevCraft Ultimate Collection. Start a free 30-day trial of Icenium icenium with support at icenium.com slash dnr that's i-c-e-n-i-u-m dot com slash dnr and don't forget to thank telerik for supporting net rocks and the tablet show
2: but it, it is interesting to see that the momentum around this we just talk about we keep thinking in terms
1: of like html5 shipped we're done right <laughs> that's an interesting interesting point actually uh so HTML5 is is a marketing term, right? It, HTML is the HTML living standard is is what really exists and is, is being worked on in standardization bodies. Uh and browser vendors are just kind of constantly doing this feedback loop where they're like, oh hey, we'll implement this. And then the, the living standard's like, okay, good, you implemented that and you had this feedback. Let me change this back a little bit. To, to match that. And then they're like, well, let me add this extra feature to get a little bit ahead of the implementations yeah. so they have some work to do. Because there's always more more features to add. And implementations slowly catch up.
0: Would ECMA have to change anything in JavaScript to support this fully?
1: Good question. Um there's one big piece, yes. Uh it's called object.observe. So the idea is that to get really performant mm. and, and really easy to use data binding. Yeah. Uh, you want to be able to observe changes to any object.
0: You want it observable.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, but they want it to be really seamless. Like, if you're doing something like WPF, you're going to have to I notify property change sure. or whatever the other thing is, right? You have to go through all this this rigmarole to make your things observable. Um, and currently, that's what you have to do in JavaScript. If you use something like Backbone, you're you have to use these get and set things that you know, you're no longer using normal JavaScript objects, you're using backbones, get and set thing. Um, knockout, you have to create these knockout observables and use those to access your data. The idea of, you know, this, this new initiative is we'll add a feature to the language itself called object.observe. So you say object.observe, you give it any object and a set of properties you want to observe. And you get notifications of those changes. And the person who wrote that object or who's manipulating that object doesn't have to do anything different.
0: Yeah, that's so, that should be the way it is in WPF 2 Yeah. It should just work. You should just, you know, imply your intent and then it should just work. That's how programming should work, really. That's how programming should work. Yeah.
2: If the challenge here is that is you're innovating around these areas, and I appreciate that we're continuing to innovate, that, you know, We still are trying to solve the DRM issue and there, the web timing standards is still a non-standard standard. standard. Every bloody browser does it differently. And said the guy who cares about performance, right? Uh, at some point we have to declare a version. Like at some point we have to say, here is the watermark. If everybody, if every browser is moving at a different pace on these things and, and just sort of settling on them, I just think from a developer's perspective, it's going to be hell. How do you know what to do?
1: Yeah. I mean that's kind of the the beauty and the horror of the web ecosystem. You know, you have all these different vendors. You don't just have one who's who's marching you forward in lockstep. You know, version one, version two, version three, version five. Well, because
2: we know when that happens, they stop. Right? Exactly. I'm looking at you, IE mm. yeah. six.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I I feel your pain, and I I think there's a lot of awareness that this is hard, and there's been a lot of convergence over recent years towards models that work better. Um, And, and so the problem comes in the edge cases, you know, some browsers think that DRM is, is kind of anti-web. And so you might not be able to get DRM in those browsers or. I'm just
2: concerned that the edge case becomes using
1: any browser than Chrome. Yes, that is a huge problem. No, and it's especially a problem in mobile, right? Because WebKit in one WebKit form. WebKit dominates. It is, yeah, it's it's exactly the problem. And so browsers like IE10, you know, they, they ended up, and IE11, they ended up implementing some proprietary WebKit things just so they could compete. Because otherwise, mobile sites would just not work. Right. And that's ugly too, right? I mean, it's... I I
2: just... Okay, I, living, the living standard sounds like such a good idea. I mean, doesn't it? It's very sexy. Don't worry, it's not going to be an HTML6. It's fine. We're just going to keep moving forward. Good things will happen. But what's, it seems to me, what's happening is fragmentation, really mean fragmentation, too.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm that pessimistic. Fragmentation isn't the word I would use, but I, I am focused very much on the concern of monocultures, right? And and getting browsers to play nicely and say we're only going to implement things that are agreed upon or in a standard. We're not going to create crazy WebKit-only thing and then everybody has to follow the rules two years later because WebKit's won. Mm. Right? You need to have more collaborative work, and and there's been a lot of good work in that direction, especially since the fork of uh, a Blink, the Chrome rendering engine from the original WebKit. Uh, Safari that was shared between Chrome and Safari.
2: In favor of this idea is this there's no better measure of how well an API works than people are willing to use it. So, I mean, it is not a bad thing that they just got it out there.
1: Right. I mean, the feedback cycle is is largely these days you know, developers agitate for something uh, and then it gets discussed and hopefully put in a pretty formalized version in the spec and then you know, developers keep agitating and browsers who want to get developer mindshare implement that piece from the spec. And part of it comes down to the manpower. Like, it, it seems to me, just based on the activity, that, you know, Chrome team has the most manpower. So they end up implementing a lot of these new things pretty quickly. Uh, and so so that's where you kind of run into these, you know, oh, everybody's using Chrome now because they successfully courted developer mindshare. Um but it's a good feedback cycle to have, nonetheless, to allow web developers and their, you know, their wants and needs to feedback into the process.
2: Right. And I guess, it's so the Apple mindset of we're going to build it and try it, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that. It's when you get results, then to come back and say, okay, now let's work with the standards body to incorporate this. And maybe we do think a little broader, not, hey, this is what people like. You can use it if you want. And, you know, there just seems to be no... You can't afford the arrogance.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really interesting seeing what companies kind of take that approach over time. Uh you know, at once upon a while time it was very much so Microsoft. It's like we're just gonna put it out there and, and maybe you guys can standardize it later if you want. I don't well know. that's
2: the sin of IE six, right? Exactly. A non-ratified version of CSS one they pseudo implement and then don't do anything for four years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, these days I think, you know, Apple is has been kind of an offender. They're getting a little better, I've heard, uh, in certain ways. But even in you know, iOS 7.1, they're just like, oh, meta name equals minimal UI. That's how you get rid of the UI on your web app. Uh, it's like, well, who, who decided that? You know, what, Where'd that come from? And now there's talk about how are we going to standardize that? How are we going to make that something that can work across different mobile browsers?
2: Right. <laughs> so, And then who, where's the real sin when you give in and, and implement their non-ratified spec?
1: I mean, is it a sin or is it just that's how it has to be?
2: Dealing you know with like like Excel implementing Lotus one two three's
1: date math errors. <laughs> that's that's what's really sad is when you get shitty things that have to get implemented cross browser because everyone's depending on the bugs. Right.
2: Well, in there we lies now, now. Let's back up with that original idea of okay, I'm going to take this API and put it out there and see if people are willing to use it. If people are willing to work around the flaws of that thing, and then you just now you've got a now you've got a code base committed to it, and you're going to break it to make it a better API, right? Right.
1: That's a dilemma. I, I'm just Dominic. I do not feel like there's a good answer here. Um. Well, one one good answer I do want to mention that we've been working towards is this thing that that you know myself and several others are called the Extensible Web Manifesto. So if you go to extensiblewebmanifesto.org, you can see this great, happy declaration of principles and so on. Essentially, it boils down to the idea that to solve this problem, we need to first focus on exposing lower-level primitives. And they might be kind of ugly API-wise, right? They, they don't have to be perfectly developed. And you know they might be coming about because of this process of Mozilla really wants to expose TCP sockets to the world and Maybe we don't get a perfect API that gets debated in a committee for a long time, but it's okay. Let's just throw out that low level thing because then developers can build higher level abstractions on top of that. You know, they want, they want to build a, a multiplayer RTC library based on top of the raw UDP API we just exposed, or right. if we want to give them these low level CSS transform primitives and then they build a, an animation library on top, something like that. And then hopefully, once we get like a clear winner, things like jQuery or, or SAS or these kind of things built on top of the web platform, we can say, oh, well, this is a really good standard. Let's all agree to implement this now that we know that developers love this type of API.
2: To the point where you think they'd actually pick that up and push it into the browser itself?
1: Yeah, yeah. And this has been happening, actually, um, in, a, in a few places. Uh, it's, uh, you know, always there's, there's a... a level of formalization and, and ironing out the edge cases that has to happen. You can't just say, oh, jQuery, in the browser, done. Um, but, you know, for my favorite example, of course, is Promises, this asynchronous programming primitive. Essentially, we worked on this in user space for a long time. We had all these libraries, you know, whether they be jQuery or, or WinJS or Dojo or standalone Promise libraries like Q or Ember or Angular have their own version. You know, and then eventually, you know, we just decided, okay, well, this is clearly something that everybody wants to use as their asynchronous programming primitive. Right. Let's put that in the browsers, and it's in the next version of ECMAScript, ECMAScript six. It's shipping in Chrome and Firefox these days, so that's pretty exciting.
2: Yeah. Well, and and you you know, there you go. There's a version number, right? Like I can get back to this. Okay, maybe we'll have one. One group that runs on what a current what the version number is actually at. What are we going to make for this version? And then another group that's running with this living model that's much more experimental.
1: Well, in some sense, I feel like the IE team is running on the versions model and the, everybody else is running on the living model. So. Right. Well, ECMA clearly is declaring versions. Yeah. I mean, it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because... ECMA is moving towards more of a living model in recognition of the fact that this is how the web works. There's still plans for versions, uh, but in reality, not, not every browser is gonna say, oh, well, we have our ECMAScript 5 version, and then, boom, we're gonna flip a switch. Here's all our ECMAScript 6 features. They're gonna implement features as they're ready, as they're available, and they'll be little subsets of the ECMAScript strict draft, and at the same time, there's work going on on what should be in ECMAScript 7, so, for example, Chrome is really excited about implementing object.observe, which is an ECMAScript 7 level feature that, that object.observe ships in Chrome before several ECMAScript 6 features do. Um, and, and so this kind of ends up being formalized in this new working model for, for the ECMAScript TC39 group in charge of, of JavaScript. Uh, they're saying they want to move towards a, like a, a train release model where every year a train leaves the station. So, you know, next year, it's going to be ECMAScript 7, leaving the station. After that, ECMAScript 8. And whatever features have managed to bubble their way through the committee to, like, final spec tech status by the time the train leaves, that's what's in that version. So a version right. is just a formalization of things that everybody's been working on. It's no longer this kind of giant, monolithic, let's get everything done and packaged together.
2: Yeah, don't set the deliverables before you've written them figure out what you could deliver while the deadline's coming. It's all well and fine till the train pulls in the station with nobody on it.
1: That's true. That's true.
2: But that's not as bad a problem as the train never gets to the station because everybody had to be on it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's part of the problem that they're trying to avoid. Like, you know, part of the reason Echo Ship 4, you never hear about it, is because it collapsed from this kind of pile-on of everybody... Trying to add features and and nobody really was happy and and it just collapsed under its own weight. Right, committee paralysis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, group Six has been building up a lot of features and they kind of recognized this isn't sustainable. You know, they're they're really close to finishing the the final spec text is there basically. You know, the the editor posted. You know, there's like one or two little tweaks we still need to make, but the rest of it's just going to be typo fixes. Um, but You know, everybody kind of got the sense, wow, that was a lot of stuff to do in one release. Let's not do that again.
2: Right. Well, because the other way to do this, instead of having the ECMA declarations, and I'm presuming that then a web developer goes and says, what's the adoption level of the ECMA 6 spec? Hey, it's 80% of the market. Well, great. Then we should be using all of the ECMA 6 capabilities. As opposed to, we're down to individual feature stacks, Right. Have we finally actually reconciled how we're going to do rounded corners? Can I count on that, and/or any of these particular feature sets? I just think I'm I'm wondering what's more reasonable to actually manage for most web developers.
1: I mean, I think it depends. I, I think to some extent you don't have a choice. You're going to have to do individual feature stacks. Because just the way the web evolves is no browser wants to, you know, go off into a corner for three years, do not ship nothing. And then, oh, hey, we got all of that for six.
2: Yeah, no, we are better off. Uh, you know, I think Chrome's proved the point that if you if you don't make breaking changes, you can push a version every month.
1: Yep. Yeah. And that's a big point. Like, that's a widely recognized by now fact of life that you can never make breaking changes to the web. Um, you know that was one of the big back in two thousand four. There was this talk of XHTML two. You know back right. when XHTML one was still cool. There was like let's just redo HTML. You know we don't need this this like be I don't know. They, they were just going to remove a bunch of tags and add a new semantic model, and it's going to be like awesome.
0: Oh yeah, sure that that won't upset anybody.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly right. What were they thinking? Um So so essentially, you know, a group of, of vendors had to had to break off from the W3C at the time and say, whoa, guys, this direction is not acceptable. We're going to go off and create this new thing called maybe HTML5. Um, And and that is going to be an evolution of what we already have in a backwards-compatible way that adds features appropriate for web applications.
0: You know, speaking of influence, is there anything that, you know, a developer who's listening to this that gets custom elements and gets why it really will work and how powerful it is. Is there anything that we can do, you know, to, to make our voice known to the W3C, um, to say, Hey, this is great. You know, how how do we get this going here?
1: Well, that's a really, that's a fun question. Cause that's been stuff I've been involved in pretty heavily over the last year is kind of bridging, bridging developers and standards bodies. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what can be done in terms of that kind of more cheerleading you know mm. we love it ship it um, besides <laughs> just submitting patches to Chrome yeah um, right or you, you know you can demonstrate enthusiasm write articles talk about ways in which it could be used you know I, I think if somebody wrote a really good article on why Winjs would look better with custom elements that might get Microsoft's attention and, and if they're not already working on it they mm. might Kick that into higher gear. Um, in terms of upcoming standards, though, I think there's a lot of things developers can do. They can say, "Hey, we're really missing a primitive for you know doing large compression operations asynchronously in the platform, right?" And so, things they could do there is they could you know they could talk about this is our use case on on public mailing lists and. You know, this is an API that we're considering. And here's a, a version we did in JavaScript that's kind of slow because we don't have access to the C++ API. Or here's a C++ extension we wrote as a Node.js add-on or as a, as a WebKit add-on, you know, and, and we think it should look like this API. What do you guys think? And I think a large part of the, the thing with the web platform is, is not that people don't want to add features. It's that there's only so many people we have time to spec out and, and implement features. So yeah. if developers get involved, that adds a lot of good manpower to, to the scene.
0: Right, bang the drum.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about the future of the web, right? And I think that's where app development is heading. And I think that I just really enjoy evolving it as a platform in a direction that, that is powerful for what we want to build.
2: And it seemed like Microsoft was thinking that with WinJS. I just don't know that WinJS is going to make it.
0: Well, and that was for a specific purpose to advance Windows, right? And this you know, this is really to make web less painful across across browsers.
1: Yeah, I mean it's with all these vendors really, there's kind of a, a strange, you know, multiple personality thing going on that's hard to tell what they're thinking. Mm. You know, because they want native apps for their platform, whether it be Windows 8 tablet apps or Chromebook apps or Firefox OS apps or whatever. But they also want to support the open web, which means it would be an app that works on all of those platforms, not just on yours. And I honestly feel like it just comes down to individual teams within the company who may or may not be talking or, or you know, may, may or may not have aligned goals. You know, the, the WinJS team may say, we realize developers like developing web technology, so we're going to give them the tools to do that for Windows 8 apps. Whereas the IE team might be like, we believe in the future of the web we're going to evolve our browser to support all the latest standards and work with other vendors to create things everyone can use. And I see a lot of that that conflict, especially in Google with their Chrome packaged apps, for example, or their Chromebook apps versus, you know, open web works in all works in Chrome with no packaging or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You still
2: have to wonder if we're going to get browser based apps to a place where that's as native as you need to be.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about that for a bit because I've been working or I've, I've been taking part in conversations uh, with people who that is their mission in life. Um, so, you know, Alex Russell uh, at, at Google and Anna von Kesteren at uh, at Mozilla are especially focused on this, among others. I, you know, I hate to leave out names, but I'd be listing quite a few. Um, they're, they're focused on they, they see the biggest problem right now is the offline problem, right? Because you think of web apps as something you access online. You know, right. Have an internet connection. Um, whereas most of your apps on your phone, you're able to pull them out in the subway or whatever and handle whatever. And, and their idea is this new thing called a, a service worker, which essentially allows you to intercept any network requests directed to your app and say, Oh, well, before we got to the internet and do that, let's maybe check a local cache, you know? And so this way you can build apps with like an index.html that works offline because whenever it sends out a request for like the list of articles, right? It can check the local cache first and load that. And then it can say, am I online? Let me refresh that list, things like that. Um, so there's a really, really cool video about this that I can link to in the show notes that explains how this builds, allows you to build these, these offline first web apps, which are in many ways just, a competitor, you know, they, they give you the competitive advantage that native apps have there. Um, so that's a big piece of the puzzle. The other is just a mindshare thing. It's, it's, you know, how do you tell people that instead of going to the app store and downloading these little siloed apps, you go to Google, you find a website and then you like bookmark it, for example, right? Something like that, right? And, and it's interesting because you can see on the iOS 7 designs, they have like a second home screen inside Safari. You open it up and you've got these like row of icons, very much like the home screen. And you can bookmark things into that. And that's like your, your web home screen. So I don't know what to think about that. Um, but yeah. that's, that's one of the, the directions we're heading is being able to say web apps are, are these things you, you find on Google and you bookmark and there you
0: go. It certainly is a, the wild west in some ways. And, uh, it's a fun time to be a web developer. That's for sure. I agree. What's uh what's next for you? What's on your to-do list?
1: Oh man. Um well, what I'm really excited about working on right now uh is uh streams for the web, which is another of these let's bring a fundamental primitive to the web platform. Um and the idea there is like streaming data. Like if you have a large amount of data you're reading out of a file and you want to pass it through a transform and then maybe put it in a video tag or upload it to a server, things like that. We don't really have a good unified primitive for that on the web. Man, platform.
0: I am so glad somebody finally said that because trying to work with any kind of stream or data at you know at the file level is just a nightmare. Because I think it's just because there we're we're afraid to to go there. You know, once we start touching files in any kind of meaningful way, that just sort of opens up the doors for you know malware and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, and there's a lot of work trying to integrate with things like the file system API proposals and things like that to give you kind of the sandbox access yep. that you would want.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. That's my newest thing. Otherwise, I'm just uh, you know in my day job, you know I've worked at Lab Forty Nine consultancy, building building large web apps essentially for for banks, and we get to push forward the web, you know, every day in what we build We're building these these web apps to do things you wouldn't have anticipated, you know, whether they be trading systems or data analysis tools or tablet apps that you can pull out and show summaries of your investments. You know, it, it's all pretty exciting to be on the ground and be pushing it. And that's where a lot of the technologies that, you know, more, less of this kind of pie-in-the-sky standards discussion, but more things like AngularJS or Ember that are right now solving the problems of making ambitious web applications come in.
0: Great. Well, Dominic, thanks for uh, spending the time with us. Man, it sounds great. Uh, this has uh, been an eye opener for sure. Awesome. I'm really glad you guys enjoyed it. All right. And we'll see you next time on The Tablet Show.